With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we're here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 44th episode of my show. I use my show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risk and issues. And I always like to try to provide listeners worldwide with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to better protect privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, Podtop, and CastBox, TuneIn, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel site. Then you'll be notified just as soon as every new show is available. I sincerely appreciate all of you worldwide who tune in, and I love seeing all the countries and cities on my listeners' report. It's really exciting for me to see. And in this past week, I had a large increase of listeners in Italy, China, and Australia. And within the U.S., I had a significant bump up in numbers from California, Georgia, Illinois, and the D.C. areas, plus many more interesting locations that I've actually put into my bucket list to visit someday. And who knows, hopefully broadcast some live shows from there when I get that opportunity. So thanks all of you so much for tuning in. Now, if you are interested in being a sponsor or advertiser for my show, please also get in touch. And if you need help with information security or privacy, let me know that too. Also, please keep on sending your feedback and questions. I really love getting all of them. My December Privacy Professor Tips message was published at the end of November. Did you get yours? Well, if not, please sign up for them. I've always provided them for free since 2007. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. Now to my tip for the week. I'm giving another tip to add to last week's tip that was related to the gift-giving season that we're within. You know, the FTC, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, provides a great amount of consumer data protection information online. So before doing more of your shopping online or donating to charities this holiday season, please check out their advice on their website, consumer.ftc.gov. 
If you go there, click the shopping topics for many tips about shopping online and during the holiday season. And you can also click the charity topic for many more tips there as well. These are good sites to add to your bookmarks. Besides the FTC site, there are some other sites to bookmark and check out often that also have a lot of really good data security privacy and consumer protection information. So another one that I like a lot is the Better Business Bureau site, bbb.org slash US. And the Consumer Reports site, consumerreports.org slash scams hyphen fraud is also another really good site to keep up with the current scams that are going on. And one more, the AARP site also has some great advice, especially for those who are retired and seniors. So go to aarp.org and do a search for holiday scams, and you're going to find several articles about these topics. So for our show today, you know, I've mentioned before that I established and managed the Information Security and Privacy Program at a large multinational financial and healthcare organization throughout the 1990s. And then I left in 2000 to join a consulting organization. And there I I really enjoyed helping a wide variety and range of other businesses with their information security and privacy initiatives, you know, at the beginning of 2000. And then I started my own consulting business in 2004. So from tiny businesses to huge multinational organizations. And I found throughout the years that the privacy problems, even though the, the, businesses and the organizations are are so diverse, oftentimes the privacy problems are very similar. And certainly over the years, the privacy risks and issues have evolved as new technology has emerged and new types of data that can be linked to individuals has been created. And certainly as new privacy laws, regulations, and standards have been enacted. But, you know, early on, late in the 1990s and the first few years of the 2000s, before there were generally any U.S. federal privacy regulations that were in force, uh, before state-level laws, before industry privacy standards, Probably the primary action that I saw and a lot of the other, my fellow consultants saw, that most of the smallest to the largest organizations took with regard to protecting privacy was to put a privacy notice, what is also often called a privacy policy, on their website. Now, often, especially early on, this privacy notice was um, done through the use of the OECD's Privacy Policy Automatic Generator. Some of you probably have seen that before. And then that resulting text from that auto-generator was then put onto the organization's website, usually verbatim, and then boom, the organization was addressing privacy, right? Well, 
So they thought. (laughs) Now, sometimes the privacy notice was required to be posted from the legal department within the organization. But more often, what I saw was it was the idea of the marketing area or the business unit heads to put this notice, a privacy notice, on the organization's website as a marketing differentiator to show that the organization was concerned about privacy protections. Usually, though, the IT and information security departments were not informed of this, and other key departments related to the privacy promises were also not notified. And a privacy department didn't even exist in most organizations back then. So this legally binding privacy notice was posted often without any internal knowledge or support from those who would need to actually perform the actions to support those posted privacy promises. Now, something that my privacy professor consulting business teams and I have done um, over the years, and we've done hundreds of them since 2000, are privacy impact assessments, or PIAs. And we've done them for a wide range of organizations throughout a wide variety of industries to identify privacy risks, you know, when organizations ask for our help to address privacy. One of the very first things I have within my PIA methodology is to meet with the key stakeholders throughout each organization. And I always ask as an initial question of all of them. So the key stakeholders are usually the legal department, IT management, information security and privacy management, the business unit heads, marketing management, HR management, physical security management, um, acquisitions, acquisitions management, the CPOs, the CAOs, and so uh, COOs, and so on. I always ask those business leaders this question: How many of you have read the privacy notice or privacy policy that's posted on your website? Well, usually there are no hands that go up, or only a very few. Cumulatively, throughout the years. I've seen this really hasn't changed that much up through today, and I've been kind of keeping track of all of this. There are still 90 to 95% of those key stakeholders within the organization who have not, they have not ever read the privacy notice. Now, they manage areas that must support the privacy notice, but they have not had their own workers that they're responsible for to do anything to support those privacy promises. Well, heck, they don't even know what the promises are. How can you fulfill promises if those who must take actions to do so do not even know what those promises are? And yet the organization leaders have often or usually felt that by posting just any old privacy notice, they fulfilled their privacy obligations without needing to actually take actions to support the pri- privacy promises within them. Well, 
the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, has increasingly been teaching many organizations a costly lesson into why those privacy notices must be supported through organizational procedures, and they've done so through their increasing penalties and long-term consent decrees that they've applied for the organizations not following their own posted privacy notices. And the FTC has also been implementing more personal data protection regulations over the years. You know, a large portion of organizations now view the FTC's actions as creating a type of implied reasonable standard or de facto standard for personal data protection for which they may be liable, even with all the now existing federal regulations from other U.S. agencies, along with all the state-level laws, all the industry standards and legal requirements and regulations from outside the U.S., The FTC is arguably the most influential U.S. regulatory authority with regard to establishing privacy requirements. And today, I am really happy for the opportunity to discuss the influence of the FTC for privacy protections and regulations over the years with a privacy expert who was at the FTC throughout many years including those times early in the 2000s as organizations kind of dipped their toes into privacy protection actions primarily initially by posting an innocent-looking privacy notice on their website. Today, I'm being joined by Mark Groman, an internationally recognized expert in privacy and information risk management. Mark advises senior leaders in both business and government on complex data-driven initiatives. Mark served as the senior advisor for privacy in the Obama White House. Mark chaired the Federal Privacy Council that was established by President Obama and was the privacy lead on the President's Cybersecurity National Action Plan. Prior to the Obama administration, Mark was president and CEO of the Network Advertising Initiative, the first chief privacy officer of the Federal Trade Commission and counsel to the Energy and Commerce Committee of the House of Representatives. Mark now serves on the Privacy Advisory Panel of the NSA and the Information Security and Privacy Advisory Board of NIST. Mark recently launched a podcast called Their Own Devices, which tackles the ups and downs of raising uh, tech-savvy connected kids. See more about Mark in his bio on my Voice America Business website. Mark, thank you so much for being my guest today. I'm really excited to have you on my show. Welcome to my show. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here, and I'm excited as well. Well, it's a, certainly a hot topic right now, and it's getting hotter, I think, uh, with regard to all the privacy initiatives going on. But, you know, I'm interested in knowing a little bit more about how you got interested in privacy law in particular. You know what? It led you into this area. 
So I didn't go to law school to become a privacy lawyer, and I think that's true for many people in the privacy profession. But what did interest me after uh, I left law school was the intersection of law, technology, and policy, and any field that sort of combined those three areas. And that, over time, led me to privacy. I went to the Federal Trade Commission uh, a few years out of law school, where I started my career litigating and prosecuting internet fraud and cybercrime cases. And over time, those high-tech cases that involve law policy and tech led me into the field of privacy, increasingly online privacy. Well, and it's becoming, I mean, almost a part of our our actual personalities, right, being online as opposed to back in the early days when just very few got online and did any type of activities. But during during your career, what is something that you've learned about privacy as a regulator that those in most organizations and the general public probably do not know or realize? Well, one interesting uh, observation I'll make is the definition of the term privacy itself, which mm-hmm. has many different definitions and different meanings in different contexts. And throughout my career, whether it was at the Federal Trade Commission, in Congress, or the White House, uh, I often find myself having to start a discussion by either defining privacy or explaining what my role is. And I think that the Federal Trade Commission, as the sort of top regulator in this area, is constantly engaging in the same kind of discussions, trying to explain to industry and consumers and foreign counterparts uh, what is privacy and how the FTC uh, handles it, regulates it, and enforces it. Well, that's a really fuzzy area, too, because, you know, privacy is such a subjective term, um, and it, it depends upon the context within which most people, you know, deal with it themselves, you know, each day, either in their work or their personal lives. So that certainly would be something that I think would be challenging, um, especially when I've heard over the years so many people and organizations think privacy is just about, you know, using encryption. <laughs> to hide personal data, but of course it goes so much further than that. Uh, In fact, I would argue that using encryption isn't actually about privacy so much as really about information security and data security. And that tees up a whole separate discussion, which is understanding the distinction between privacy, which is really about the responsible and ethical and transparent use of data, versus data security, which is about protecting the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of that data. There's an overlap, but it's really important to understand in 2018 that they are very distinct areas and require different and distinct skill sets. Well, I think that's such an important point. I mean, definitely there's an overlap. But, you know, in all of the organizations that I've been helping over the years, I find too many of them still have a completely separate area for privacy. And they have another separate area for information security. And too often they just don't communicate or they don't coordinate. And so that leaves either gaps or they they result in conflicts between what the two are doing uh, with regard to each of their uh, respective areas. So I think that's a still a huge concern. 
Right. Um, uh, I think that many organizations are still wrestling with how to develop and structure their privacy program and how the privacy program and the chief privacy officer work with and collaborate with uh, other senior officials like the CIO or the chief information security officer. And so privacy is still a relatively young profession, and it's maturing, and we're seeing that evolve over time. But to your point, we want to make sure that privacy and security collaborate and work together, but we also want to make sure that the same person isn't necessarily in charge of both and that we have the right people with the right talent and skills. Well, unless, of course, the organization is such that, you know, there's a lot of small organizations out there. And I found over the years, uh, a lot of times the hat of information security responsibility goes on to someone who's doing something else entirely different just simply because of the size of the organization. So, you know, I think it kind of brings up the point that there's no cookie cutter approach to how each organization handles it because it often does depend upon the industry, the size of the organization, the location, and so on. So I think that that also makes things more challenging to so many organizations because of their unique differences within their business environments. Absolutely. Now, you know, here's a question I get from a lot of folks, and I don't know what it is, so I, I love being able to ask you this question about the, all those penalties, all those fines and penalties. You know, you see all these multi-million dollar fines and penalties now being applied, and I have a lot of people say, well, who gets that money? Where do those fines and penalties go? And, of course, we've seen a, a proposal from HIPAA now to have some of that go to the the victims involved or the people whose personal information is is involved. But where, do, where does all of that money go that companies pay for those penalties for being in noncompliance with privacy requirements? So that's an interesting question, and you actually raise several different issues, which is, what kind of enforcement actions can the FTC bring? And mm-hmm. under what circumstances can the FTC obtain civil penalties? In addition, in other cases, when can the FTC obtain what we call consumer redress, which is actually getting money back in the hands of consumers? And depending on what statute or regulation the FTC is enforcing in a given case, that will actually dictate the kinds of remedies the FTC can obtain uh, and when they can obtain civil penalties versus just injunctive relief versus getting money to consumers. Under the FTC Act, which, as you know, is the FTC's baseline enforcement statute that uh, the FTC brings for companies who engage in unfair or deceptive acts. Under that law, the FTC actually can't get civil penalties uh, in the first round case, and that's uh, mm. the subject of much discussion today. So if mm-hmm. it's an FTC Act case, uh, in all likelihood, the FTC is seeking to stop a practice and perhaps uh, place a particular company under an order to change their practices going forward. In some cases, though, Uh, The FTC can uh, obtain redress, depending on the kind of injury in a case. And that is really the goal of the FTC, which is if a consumer has uh, been injured or faced economic hardship or harm because of a company's business practices, the goal of any enforcement action is to get the money back in the hands of the consumer. When you use the term civil penalty, 
That comes up in very specific cases where Congress has authorized the FTC to get civil penalties. So, for example, in cases brought under the Fair Credit Reporting Act or the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, in those specific cases, the FTC can and often does seek civil penalties, and those penalties actually go back to the, uh, the Treasury. Uh, they don't stay with the Federal Trade Commission uh, to boost their resources, but rather go to, uh, go to the Treasury. So it has historically, and let me know if, if this is completely wrong, but historically then, from what you're saying, it doesn't go back to the actual folks who might have had their personal data breached within those cases then? Well, it will be very fact-specific and will depend Mm -hmm. on the type of injury and how practical it is for uh, the FTC to return funds to consumers. So in a data breach case, it may actually not be practical. uh, And in fact, in those cases, there often is not a civil penalty. uh, And so it's usually about uh, placing a company under order, ensuring that they stop the practices, uh, and that going forward, the company does implement reasonable data security procedures. However, if a company has is already under order, meaning this is not their first time before the FTC, and a great example of that right now is Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, Facebook is already under a consent order with the FTC, and as is now public, the FTC is investigating the Cambridge Analytica uh, issues. And mm-hmm. so in that case, because there already is a consent decree, and it is possible that Facebook violated that consent decree, there is potential for enormous civil penalties in that case. Ah, interesting. Well, and that what you just uh, were talking about, too, brings up something interesting. It seems like historically a lot of the consent decrees um, have been for 20 years And, you know, a lot of people that I work with in my business say, why 20 years? I mean, we we have a break coming up here in a minute, but I thought, you know, before we go there, I'm curious, too, why was that 20-year time period chosen as opposed to some other length of time? A lot of people in business wonder that. So I don't actually know the reason why it was initially selected, but I do know as a former FTC uh, staff attorney and official that the FTC is not inclined to deviate from those 20 years. And so to the extent you are negotiating an order, uh, going in with that request uh, is something that every defendant or respondent asks for, and there needs to be highly unusual and very compelling circumstances for the FTC to deviate from what they consider to be a very standard term, which is uh, compliance and reporting for 20 years. Yeah, so it sounds like perhaps it was established maybe within different uh, other types of legal situations that weren't even involved with privacy and just was a carryover from that um, earlier precedent that was already well, set from other Well, it certainly comes up in all of the FTC's cases and consent decrees, whether they're about privacy or security or uh, deceptive marketing or advertising cases, uh, that that requirement would be uh, across the board. Uh, but again, I, I don't recall exactly why it's 20, but the important point is that as long as a company is under a consent decree, then if they potentially violate that consent decree or the FTC Act again, 
in those circumstances, now they're facing significant potential civil penalties. And that okay. is the circumstance that Facebook finds itself in today. Oh, well, let's uh, take a quick break here. And when we come back, I want to uh, cover some of your your specific cases throughout your uh, time there, too, and get into some of that. So right now is a time for a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I do appreciate so much. I'm speaking today with Mark Groman, an internationally recognized privacy advisor and host of his new podcast, Their Own Devices. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today with Mark Groman, the original FTC Chief Privacy Officer. So when we come back to discussing um, the FTC and you were the first CPO, what did you start out doing at the FTC? Were you hired right into that new, uh, newly created role, or were you already there? No, I, uh, I started out as a staff attorney focusing on Internet fraud and Internet-related internet uh, unfair and deceptive practices back in 2000. One of my first cases, actually, 
um, became rather high profile where I brought an enforcement action against a gentleman named John Zuccarini, who had Ooh. registered in excess of 5,000 domain names that were misspellings of very common domain names uh, and companies and celebrities and the like. And what he had done is, if a person mistyped the address of where they were hoping to go, they would be diverted to his websites where he would engage in a variety of actually basic web tricks that now aren't even effective, but back then they appeared fairly high tech, and he would trap a user in his web of websites and not let them exit. And, of course, many of these websites had content that was certainly not appropriate for minors and children. And uh, we filed a law enforcement action by using the FTC's traditional authority under the FTC Act, but applying it to a very novel set of new Internet facts. And it was a challenging case. And actually, a companion criminal case was filed, and it took us several years to find Mr. Zuccarini, who ultimately mm. did sign a consent order and actually did some time in prison. Wow. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, his own digital web of deception that it sounded like was pretty successful for at least a little while until uh, the FTC got a hold of him then. So... <laughs> You know, at the beginning, I talked about how so many organizations um, started out with privacy and they pretty much thought we we only need to give, you know, just uh, put a po- put a notice out there. The OECD has an automatic privacy policy generator. We'll just do that. We'll put it out there and then we'll be done. But then... They never, I mean, they still, to this day, Mark, it's really interesting to me when I do the PIAs, they still don't communicate so many times what those privacy notices say. But, you know, starting back in 2000 um, with the Toy Smart case, and that one comes up a lot with my uh, different clients because it has to do with them not supporting their privacy notice promises, right? So um, there's a fundamental concept here, a foundational uh principle in the law, which is essentially thou shalt not lie. And if you put that into FTC Act language, we call that deception, meaning you put out a statement, a representation to your customers and consumers. They then rely on that statement and make decisions based on it, but in fact, that statement turns out to be false. Or Mm -hmm. you fail to make a statement that is otherwise necessary to convey the truth. And so if a company is cutting and pasting a privacy policy from another website and does not uh, check and confirm that in fact, all of those representations apply to its own practices, and it turns out they don't, that is, in fact, a deceptive practice, and frankly, there's pretty much no defense to that. You don't even need intent. The fact is, putting up a privacy policy that you don't know if it's true or accurate is a deceptive practice because your consumers are expected to rely on it. That's why you put it up. That's why it's public, and it is incumbent on any organization that has a privacy policy to ensure that it is accurate, that it is current, up-to-date, 
uh, and that it conveys the right kinds of information about the way a user's personal information is collected, used, shared, transferred, sold, maintained, stored, processed, and destroyed. And it is a pretty straightforward concept. And in 2018, uh, we really shouldn't even be debating whether or not a privacy policy can or should be false. Uh, we should be beyond that and talking about some of the much more difficult sort of technical issues that we're all grappling with uh, in the face of rapidly changing technology. Well, and I agree with you there, but what I found is, especially through my Simbus business, where I have a lot of uh, very small businesses who, they don't have legal staff, and I have a lot of startups and cloud services, and here's what I find with them, they they do what they think they have to do, put out a privacy notice, but they don't realize, and this is what I'm constantly telling them, they don't realize that it's an actual legally binding document. They think that it's just part of, you know, marketing. And so I think that's where there's a big disconnect between what uh, the, the legal realities are and what the perception is for so many organizations who ultimately do things that aren't in compliance with what they view as just something that helps to to look good to their potential clients or customers or whatever. So, and I am very sympathetic to small and medium-sized businesses. Um, I work with many startups myself, and I know that they are strapped for resources, and the goal is getting out that product or service, and things like privacy tend to come in year two or maybe year three uh, after maybe an initial round of funding or there's some success. Um, but that is a risk, and mm-hmm. certainly starting a business has a wide range of risks, but if your company, particularly if it's a data-intensive or data-driven business, you have to focus on privacy, and it doesn't matter. Um, we used to think of a small business as, you know, there are five people and your revenue is X, Y, or Z, and therefore you're a small business. But what's interesting in this new technology world is that you can have a business operated by two or three people, but that business may collect data on tens of millions of individuals, and it Mm -hmm. may be very sensitive data. And so if that's your business model where you're collecting uh, and processing sensitive information perhaps about individuals' health through an app or a dating app which has all kinds of sensitive data, then it is on you to understand the legal regime and your legal obligations, uh, and that includes privacy. Oh, gosh, yeah. And, you know, here's one other thing I found with that, too, uh, with the small and, and businesses and startups. So many of them that have clients who are other businesses, so they are vendors or contractors for other businesses. So many of them, when I initially start working with them, they're like, well, we don't have to follow privacy rules or laws because we're doing business for, you know, another organization. So it's ultimately their responsibility. So I think that's another big um, problem is that so many of these startups, cloud services, vendors, and, and service organizations don't realize that, yes, they they do have obligations to actually um, protect data. It's not the full responsibility of the their uh, business clients, even though, of course, that responsibility does flow to them in many ways. Right, and in 
you know, with many of the clients that I work with, both small and large enterprises, these exact issues come up in contract negotiations where Mm -hmm. everyone is trying to um, move around risk or push risk to the other party to a contract, looking for indemnification clauses, placing all kinds of responsibilities on the other entity to protect data, have reasonable appropriate security, uh, even guarantee the location where data will be stored. And mm-hmm. so all of these issues are making um, vendor agreements and contract negotiations a lot more complicated in 2018 than they were just a few years ago. Yes, yes. So all the listeners out there, make sure you realize this, that yes, it is your responsibility if you have a business or other type of service or any other organization of your own. Now, you know, I have had a lot of listeners this year, probably, you know, my, my show started at the beginning of this year. And because there's so many things going on in politics, too, a lot of my listeners, um, not just in the U.S., but also outside of the U.S., have asked, well, how much influence does Congress and the Department of Justice and the White House have on cases brought by the Federal Trade Commission and the associated fines and penalties there seems to be, um, you know, the view out there that all of the agencies are somehow working together and, and not truly independent. I thought I'd give you a chance to explain this maybe a little bit for them, since I, I think this is not, not really uh, the way it is. So actually, the Federal Trade Commission is an independent agency, and it has a long history and tradition of acting very independently from the White House and the executive branch. And it also has a long tradition of being a fairly bipartisan agency within a fairly toxic government. And that remains true today. Um, There are five new commissioners and there's a new chairman who has uh, been at the FTC in previous roles. And from everything I see, it continues to be a very independent agency, and it continues to operate in a very collegial and fairly uh, nonpartisan way, which is one of the reasons why the Federal Trade Commission is so widely respected, uh, not only here in the United States, but by other regulators abroad because of that tradition of independence. Now, of course, we want our agencies to collaborate, and so Mm -hmm. we want to ensure that if two agencies uh, are investigating one entity, maybe for similar or related practices, that they do coordinate, they do communicate, uh, whether that's at the federal level or if state attorneys general are investigating an entity, uh, we certainly want our enforcers to collaborate and coordinate. But that is very different than suggesting that Entities within the executive branch, such as the Department of Justice, uh, have influence over settlements and uh, case selection. In my experience, they don't. And mm-hmm. the, the commissioners uh, tend to be rather independent and tend to act as they believe is right, given the laws they enforce. So there really is a good history of independence. Uh, certainly, uh, Congress has oversight authority. In fact, there's a hearing tomorrow uh, in the Senate where I believe all five commissioners will be testifying. And so that is the appropriate role of Congress to do oversight over an agency to ensure they're using resources effectively and efficiently and protecting consumers. 
But when it comes down to specific cases, uh, by and large, the FTC is independent and acts um, within the confines of the FTC Act and independently. And for our listeners, uh, we're recording this early, so the date that Mark is referencing will be November 27th. So if you look that up or Google it, look for November 27th, uh, since um, that will be actually already happened then. So hopefully you can look that up and and see what comes from that hearing. Uh, Probably find it on C-SPAN or whatever. So, you know, Mark, what's been the most impactful case decision from your perspective or from a privacy protection perspective from the FTC to date, if there has been one? So I don't tend to focus on any single case um, Mm -hmm. as really the seminal case that will really guide you. I I think it's more important to focus on what the FTC has done, you know, over the the past, you know, 10 plus years, which is um, they brought 60 cases alleging that a company's data security practices were uh, not reasonable or appropriate in given circumstances. That is fairly significant. Um, And if you look in total at cases that involve uh, data or personal data, they brought um, over 500 enforcement actions under a wide range of statutes and regulations that cover different kinds of data collection practices or uses of data for certain kinds of marketing. It is very clear that privacy has been a priority, and it is very clear from the current chairman and full commission that they are going to continue to invest heavily in, uh, in privacy cases. I would recommend that your listeners look at some of the more recent cases from the past year or two that highlight how companies can truly get tripped up when they don't understand their own technology and don't apply the law to the way technology works. And that is really an area that that's my specialty, that intersection of law and privacy and technology. But just looking at cases, um, for example, uh, the, the Lenovo case, right, which is a seller of mm-hmm. laptops, um, mm-hmm. had a consent decree because they shipped laptops that had pre-installed software programs on it. And those programs interfered with the consumer's browser and actually sort of served like a man-in-the-middle proxy and was able to view um, all of the data going back and forth from a consumer's computer. Uh, It was for advertising purposes, but there was no notice. Um, Consumers didn't opt in. And they were tagged with a very complex complaint alleging unfairness and deception. And so those kinds of practices um, where we're seeing new technologies, um, you know, in the Internet of Things are teeing up these kinds of issues. And I think it's important to focus on these newer cases that are Mm -hmm. applying traditional legal theories to new kinds of technology. Another case, which really isn't that complicated, but um, was the FTC's case against Vizio that sells Internet-connected smart televisions. And there again, uh, set-top data was being collected about everything consumers were watching on their smart TVs without proper notice. That is, in my view, um, fairly invasive, and I would argue that if you keep track of my viewing habits or my family's viewing habits over time, that can reveal a tremendous amount of data about my household. 
And so if a company is going to have an Internet-connected device, whether it's a TV or my thermometer or thermostat or microwave, then there has to be notice and there has to be an explanation of what's happening. Uh, and the, the use of the data needs to be consistent with the context and reasonable. And so these cases that are highlighting these issues in new technology are very important for companies to consider um, as they are adopting new technology, working with partners who have new technology or the like. Yes, the, the supply chain is so important there because oftentimes an organization may not even realize that an entity that they've contracted to do some sort of business processing or create a new type of, of component for their product or service is even doing something like that. And I think related to that, but, but in these cases, I think they did know that, right? Uh, Vizio and, and Lenovo, they knew that that was happening, but perhaps they didn't realize or maybe chose not to acknowledge the, the privacy issues. But, you know, you've probably heard about the the hardware, the chips, the compu- computer chips and so on that um, have been found to potentially be collecting data um, as well. And oftentimes when you think of creating a new type of product or service that involves the collection or processing of personal data, you don't think about the hardware. At least a lot of the organizations uh, that I've spoken with haven't really thought about the hardware. But certainly in those cases, and you know, I, I'm throwing this at you just kind of on the fly here, but as you were giving those examples, it, it occurred to me, what kind of liability would those type of organizations that sell computers and other types of products have uh, if they say that they're not doing this, but yet unbeknownst to them or they didn't test for it or know how to test for it, the, the hardware was actually collecting data uh, through the chips or through the other parts of the circuitry that uh, becomes part of their products that they're selling. So first Every case is going to be very fact-specific and will Mm -hmm. depend on a variety of factors and context. So there is obviously no universal answer that I can offer. But what it does Mm -hmm. come down to is reasonable business practices and uh, and due diligence. And so, for Mm -hmm. example, this issue did come up in the Lenovo case because, in fact, the software wasn't created by Lenovo, but by an entity with whom they were doing business. And uh, I don't recall the exact allegations, and again, they're only allegations, but the question was, um, what type of due diligence did Lenovo do? Did they inspect the product, understand uh, its capabilities? Uh, did they do due diligence on their vendor and so forth? And so you know, depending on the kind of business that you are in and the type of information that you will be processing uh, will trigger different levels of obligations. We don't expect the same kinds of due diligence in all cases, but where, you know, it really would be material, um, then a company has to do some type of due diligence before they work with a vendor uh, or uh, accept the representation that software does what it says it does and nothing else. Yes, yeah, that's so important. It seems like it's uh, so, too often uh, not appropriately addressed. You know, talking about the FT... It is, oh, go ahead. The, the supply chain issue is very difficult in all contexts, and mm-hmm. I worked on that in, in the federal government as well. 
and keeping track of the supply chain and understanding all the components in a project raises enormous challenges in both privacy as well as in data security, as you pointed out. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, where do you see the FTC going in coming years with regard to privacy enforcement, uh, regulations, and so on uh, with regard to, you know, what having uh, increasing their presence or do you see other agencies coming in and starting to have more enforcement from them? I mean, what do you foresee? Well, I expect the FTC to remain the primary regulatory agency on privacy. And they've already indicated that they intend to invest significant resources uh, in their privacy enforcement program. Right now, the FTC is conducting uh, a series of their hearings uh, to explore issues around new technology, whether or not the FTC's current authority is adequate uh, to address all privacy harms or whether there may be gaps that ought to be filled. And so they are taking a really serious uh, look at not just their own enforcement authority, but the kinds of practices that are in the marketplace today and into the future. I do expect other agencies to increasingly look at issues around privacy, uh, security, and data collection. Uh, we've seen that in the past from the FCC, or Federal Communications Commission. Uh, we know that the SEC is interested in representations by public companies, and certainly the state attorneys general um, have long had a interest in privacy, and I expect that to increase over time. But I do think the Federal Trade Commission will uh, remain the primary regulator in this area. Of course, the wild card is, um, as you may know, there are discussions now in Washington, D.C. about uh, federal privacy legislation in the United States. We, we don't have an omnibus or general privacy law here in the U.S. Uh, in contrast with uh, Europe and Canada, in fact, most other countries, we do not have one law. And there are some serious discussions now about whether or not it's time for Congress to enact a general or omnibus privacy law to cover all sectors. That could change the landscape significantly depending on how the law plays out. I wish I had more time. We're getting to the end of the, our hour here, and I wish I had more time to discuss a lot more of this with you. But before we have to go, I do want to um, give you the opportunity to talk about your new podcast and, and any other uh, final thing you want to leave with our listeners today in, the, in you know maybe a minute or two. And maybe I'll come back at some future time. So yes. my technology and privacy career has spanned uh, almost 20 years, and what has changed for me recently is um, I'm a parent of a now teenager, and I have wrestled with privacy and technology in the White House, at the Pentagon, in the Situation Room, and the like on very difficult issues. Uh, I never imagined that dealing with technology in my own home could be just as frustrating, and we have a whole generation of kids who are born digital. They live, eat, breathe, sleep uh, with their devices. They're connected 24-7 via all kinds of social media and group chats. And the benefits are enormous, whether it's about education and communicating and socializing, but there are tremendous potential downsides as well, from increases in anxiety and sleep deprivation to cyberbullying and screen time and gaming addiction and the like. And just 
handling that as a dad, even a dad who's an expert like myself, has proved challenging. Mm-hmm. And so I put together a new, original, unique podcast called Their Own Devices to talk parent to parent about these kinds of issues with a wide range of guests. And my co-host is actually a doctor of adolescent medicine who specializes in these issues with teens so that we can bring two perspectives to these issues, privacy, security, reputation, uh, which is my expertise, and mental and physical health and how technology and media can impact our children and teens. So we're having a great time with it. It's important issues. Uh, We're doing it in a way that I hope people will find engaging, entertaining, and informative. It's called Their Own Devices, and we would love people to uh, listen, subscribe, and communicate with us and share how do you address issues around screen time, mobile devices, are your 10-year-olds on Instagram, at what age do you give your kid a smartphone? Uh, all those issues and more are the kinds of things we're discussing. Um, and so I've gone from privacy in the White House to parenting in my house uh, on my uh, own podcast, their own devices. Great. Well, I will have that link to your show in uh, on my site information, Mark. So thank you so much for being with us today. I definitely will have you back sometime to continue this discussion. Well, thank you. Very important topics. Uh, and um, an absolute pleasure uh, being on your show. Thank you. Today I've been speaking with Mark Groman about the FTC and privacy and his new podcast. Uh, do you have a topic to suggest I cover or a guest to suggest? Well, just let me know. You can send me your ideas using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Please tune in to my show each week. And if you can't make the scheduled live time or initial airing time, you can always listen to all of my past recordings. And you can find my recordings on dozens of those apps as well as through my VoiceAmerica.com business channel site. I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work or encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured and personally used um, and also potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.